Hello everyone, I'm Michael Millerman and this is Millerman Talks, episode 15. Today I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes about Martin Heidegger and political theory. First, you should know that political theory is a subfield in political science. If you go to a university in North America today and you study political science, eventually you'll have the opportunity to choose a subfield or an area of concentration. That could be international relations, comparative politics, sometimes US politics, um, development studies. Well, one of the subfields in political science is called political theory. And that's where you're likely to read books that deal with the ideas and concepts that we use in understanding political life, moral disputes about the good society, debates about the nature of justice, about institutions, and so on. So uh, introductory class on political theory will usually cover Plato's Republic, Aristotle's Politics, Machiavelli's The Prince, um, Hobbes's Leviathan, and other books from the history of political philosophy that deal with those fundamental questions um, and don't see eye to eye in answering them. That means that for everybody today who is getting an education geared towards um, an understanding of political life, because what is political science? Political science is supposed to mean uh, knowledge of political things, scientific knowledge of political things, of our laws, our institutions, power relationships. And given the importance and centrality of of um, politics and of, of the political character um, of human existence, you would think that political science is in some sense a privileged discipline uh, or at least, at least equally as important as some other fundamental disciplines. But in some sense, according to Aristotle, uh, Aristotle's argument, the political science is the number one science because what else you're allowed to study in a political regime depends to an extent on the character of that regime. Some regimes will censor philosophy. Uh, some regimes will censor or banish the serious study of theology or the serious criticism of theology. So in a way, the political science is the science that orients what's possible for study in a regime. And in that sense, it has a place or ought to have a place of privilege. Of course, we don't really treat political science today in that way. And I'll make another video discussing how political science transformed, our understanding of political science transformed as our understanding of what counts as a science transformed. Um, but right now, I want to take the subfield of political theory, that place in political science where you actually get the moral arguments about the good society. And I'd like to share with you um, the interesting circumstance that there's a single philosopher who in a way stands over and above the various schools of political theory and has influenced each of them radically, sometimes because 
he's been the source for ideas that they embrace. And sometimes because in rejecting his ideas, that's how they've come to build up their identity as a school of political theory. Well, before I tell you who that is, that's my daughter. Yeah, we're recording a video about political philosophy. Before I tell you who that is, um, I would like to introduce you to a couple of schools of thought in political theory. One school of thought in political theory that you might have encountered or read about or heard about is Straussians. Straussians are students or students of students of the political philosopher, scholar of political philosophy, Leo Strauss. He influenced the generation of people who studied with him and imparted to their scholarship and to their pedagogy a certain style and a certain um, method that basically sees us as having fallen away from a serious study of old books. So basically, Strauss argued, I mean, there's a lot to say about this, but I'll try to be try to say it in a nutshell. Basically, Strauss said that we treat classical political philosophy, Plato and Aristotle, among others, foremost among others, as no longer relevant for us in our circumstances, because they are ancient thinkers who shared the presuppositions of their time and culture, whereas we are modern people who live in a different time, a more advanced time that has come to learn about the superstitions of the past and in a more advanced culture, technologically and scientifically. So we can't really learn anything about the truth of human and political life by reading Plato and Aristotle. We can only learn about the prejudices of the ancient Greeks that they had, you know, they, um, they were homosexuals, they mistreated their women, they kept slaves, they believed in gods, many gods. They didn't have the progressive enlightened view of sexual relations and of human and social relations that we have today. At most, you can read them as a record of uh, mistakes that we have overcome, but in no case can you read them as a source for the truth about the most important matters of human and political existence. Strauss thought that was a mistake, that in fact, if we normally put the books of the ancient world under the standard of the modern world, it would be a worthwhile experiment to put the standards of the modern world under the standards of the ancient world, to judge our prejudices in light of the standard of platonic political philosophy, for example. At least to conduct the experiment of changing our allegiances or our, our perspective. And Strauss's view, which he demonstrated amply in his writings, was that there is an abundant amount of fundamentally important material we can learn from studying pre-modern thinkers. In fact, we can't even understand ourselves unless we understand what modern political philosophy was a reaction to and a revolution against. So students of Strauss in political theory they follow Strauss's analysis by teaching old books in somewhat the way that Strauss himself would teach them. 
So Strauss thought not only that we've come to ignore those books, but that we read them with a whole set of faulty interpretive lenses. As I said, the progressive lens being one of those. Um, and we've relied on translations that are faulty because the translator thinks he knows better than the author what the author is saying. So if you're a translator of Plato and you come across some term that doesn't have a strict equivalent in English because, for example, the polis in Plato's Republic is not quite either the state or the city, and you come up with some formula like city-state, for example, or in other words, and more generally speaking, if the interpretation is not faithful to the text, it means that we can't learn what Plato wanted us to learn. We can only learn the interpretation conveyed to us by the translator, which may be ideologically unsound. As a result, some of Strauss's students um, produced new translations of Platonic dialogues that aimed to be strictly literal, always translating the same words by the same words and trying never to interpolate their own interpretive or ideological uh, bias. For example, The Laws of Plato was translated by Thomas Pengel, a student of Strauss. The Republic was translated by Alan Bloom, a student of Strauss. And these translations and the studies that are um, based on them by Strauss's students are of high quality and well worth um, your time and attention. So in political theory, students of Strauss, they have that approach to the old books, which ones we should read, which ones are most important, how we should read them, and how they stand vis-a-vis -vis the changes in interpretation that came with um, modern and postmodern relativistic types of interpretations. That school of political theory tends to be somewhat conservative it doesn't like postmodern, deconstructive, leftist, anti-liberal approaches, which it sees as a serious threat to the constitutional order and a threat to the basic aims of a classical um, liberal education, an education that's designed to liberate the mind from the oppression of opinion by transforming opinion into knowledge through the study of philosophy. Old books, literal translations, opposition to historical relativism and conservatism as opposed to leftism. In a nutshell, that characterizes the basic uh, contours of the Straussian school of political theory. Other schools that you might encounter, I mean, it's important because the people who are going through these programs are being shaped um, one way or another with respect to these crucial questions about the nature of the good society, a good political order, what is justice, whether we should respect the laws, what kinds of laws that there should be, and so on. Another school of political theory is kind of like postmodern, deconstructive, post-structuralist, Foucault, Derrida, all of the French thinkers who some of, our, some of them are published by Verso. They tend to be on the left. Um, they are maybe more openly philosophical or jargony than Strauss and his students. Strauss and his students prefer to use, uh, while Strauss himself said, we should talk about political life from the point of view of um, like common language. Like there's a tyrant, you know, or there's a courageous man, or there's a coward. 
things that every citizen can relate to on the basis of his or her own experience. Whereas the French theoretical schools of political theory, they sometimes talk more about um, jargon type analysis of political life where you have to specifically learn that language in order to understand what they're talking about. Um, and you can just read a few pages of Derrida and see whether it makes sense to you if you've never read him before. See, does that make sense to you as an ordinary citizen or not? Um, and chances are that it won't because it depends on theoretical insights into the nature of language and the nature of identity and all of these types of things that are quite fascinating, but that distinguish left continental political theory, um, this deconstructive left, postmodern left, uh, neo-Marxist postmodern left from conservative, pro-constitutional and pro-classical Straussian school. So that's like one divide in political theory. You'll have students, classes and professors who may lean one way or another. And what is taught and how it's taught will be completely different depending on whether it's taught from a Straussian perspective or from one of this French leftist perspective, generally speaking. Uh, but that's not that's not all. There are other schools. Let me just mention um, one or two more. So there's another um, school in political theory that basically is social democratic. So in that sense, it's on the left. It opposes big ideas and grand narratives. For example, it doesn't think that we should talk about um, like nature, natural rights or truths about human nature, whether they're given by God or whether they're given by reason, because this school sees abstractions like God, reason, man, nature, words like nouns like that, it takes as abstractions that stand in the way of social democratic progress. That school had a great representative, an American pragmatist, Richard Rorty. He doesn't quite have a school named after him in the way that you have Derridians and Straussians, but his approach, his social democratic approach um, to the relationship between our political goals, our social and political goals on one hand, and our basic ideas about existence, like, again, he denies that you should speak, he denies that we should talk about like reason and, and, and mankind because those are abstractions, conceptual abstractions that impede actual social progress. Whereas other thinkers would say, well, whether or not our conceptions impede social progress, what's important is that we get the analysis right in the first place. So they would say truth does exist and it's important that we orient ourselves toward it, regardless of what the political outcome is. But Rorty, his position and the position of those who, who um, follow him is that the, prime, the primacy is not the conceptual, our knowledge about things, the real understanding of existence, but rather the primacy should be our political and social goals. And if our political and social goals are um, social democratic, then we will have a totally different existence will change because there's no such thing as existence. There's only it's like it's social construction, but it's social construction. It's socially constructed as a function of our social and political goals and aims. Derrida, he doesn't quite see the relationship that way. 
because his view is that the social and political aims follow from the analysis of the nature of language and existence. So even though they're both on the left and they may both be championing social democratic aims, they see the relationship between the social and political aims and existence uh, in somewhat opposite ways. Which one comes first? So Strauss, Derrida, Rorty. Um, but you also have other schools in political theory that are not to the left of Strauss and social democratic, but to his right. They're not always given um, their due analysis in departments of political theory, because usually Strauss is seen as far right from the point of view of a social democrat um, or a liberal theorist, whether of the American pragmatist type or of the French postmodern type. Um, Strauss himself already is seen as a bit of a reactionary, if not as a fascist, um, because the defense of ancient texts can run counter to a progressive uh to the installation of a progressive worldview because Plato is hierarchical, for example. Whereas if we're trying to aim at equality, we may want to reinterpret, either not read Plato or reinterpret him or criticize him on the basis of our social, political, moral commitment to equality. Um, that's why Strauss himself is already seen as like the conservative Straussians are already seen as, in a way, the most conservative school of political theory. But there are serious schools of political theory that are, so to speak, to the right of them. And one way to understand how that can be um, is that Strauss was very... Strauss wanted to accomplish a couple of things in his writings. He wanted to restore philosophy to its rightful status as that activity that is most human in a way, or like the peak human existence is the existence of the philosopher. The philosopher for Strauss is the standard and philosophy is the highest human activity. But under modern circumstances, philosophy has lost its original meaning, it's lost its original character, and it's no longer understood as the highest human activity. It's now seen basically as something that can help serve liberal democratic political aims. So he sought to restore philosophy to its original um, dignity at the same time as providing an intellectual basis for and defense of liberal democratic constitutional governments. So those are two cross purposes in a way, defending liberal democratic constitutionalism, while at the same time restoring philosophy to a place of high dignity without allowing the philosophical criticism of liberal democracy to undo the good moderate political order that we um, that we have for Strauss. So he wanted to protect political life from the potential all-consuming fire of philosophy. And he had the experience. Um, he knew firsthand that the most outstanding philosopher of the 20th century, and not only of the 20th century, was politically immoderate. I mean Martin Heidegger. So Strauss wanted to preserve immoderate philosophical desire 
and moderate political existence at the same time. And if any of you have heard that Strauss and his students practice the art of writing between the lines or of esoteric writing or of concealing a message depending on the audience that you're talking to, that's a function of this dual desire to speak one way to philosophers and another way to non-philosophers in order both to preserve in order to preserve both political moderation and philosophical legitimate philosophical madness the madness that's characteristic of philosophy that belongs to it so strauss's students as i say they write between the lines to try to preserve uh, the immoderation of philosophy and the moderation of uh, political life but there are some people who think that you don't you can't necessarily have it that way that something must give in this uneasy compromise between philosophy and politics that in some way philosophy must uh, like hide its light under a bushel is that the saying philosophy must conceal its light in order to have political moderation but when philosophy conceals its light it somehow is how can you put it it somehow um doesn't step into its full glory and full dignity so people who are political theorists or political philosophers to the right of strauss in a way they are more they're more willing to have the all-consuming fire of philosophy exert its effect on political life they're less interested in protecting politics from philosophy and more interested in giving philosophy its full glory. For about the last 30, 40 minutes, um, I've been speaking about the importance of Martin Heidegger to our understanding of social and political um, thought. But unfortunately, although the microphone was working, I forgot to hit play on the video recorder. It's what happens when you try to do too many things at once, um, not so carefully. So I have the audio, I'll post the audio for anyone who might be um, interested in that. But here, let me just recapitulate the argument briefly and I'll be as brief and to the point as I can be. So I've already said that you have a variety of schools of political theory, Strauss, Rorty, Derrida, and a school to the right of Strauss that takes Heidegger not more seriously necessarily than Strauss did, but doesn't try to limit Heidegger's impact through um, through the aim of political moderation. You know what I'm saying? Like you might try, you might say that even though Heidegger is a deep and fundamental thinker who's discovered many truths about the nature of human existence, nevertheless, we should uh, not talk about that openly because it risks putting into question the primary organizational opinions of the day about what's good and right and what matters. Um, so should we reconfigure philosophy in light of our political goal of moderation, or should we reconfigure our political goals in light of what philosophy reveals to us? That's an open debate, and it's a point worth, I mean, there's no... I can't say that one of those is the correct one. It depends on, it's actually, I would say, the, the crucial question for a thoughtful person today who is faced 
whether as a citizen of the West or as a citizen of some other civilizational space or national space, um, and is thoughtful enough that the thought rises beyond just wanting to defend the principles of the regime, whatever those happen to be, beyond that to trying to establish a correct and truthful understanding about the nature of human existence and its relationship to the rest of existence. Because really, if you think about it, when we say a right to choose, a woman's right to choose, okay, debates about abortion, about the importance of family, about the importance of ethnic identity or racial identity, national identity, about our religious identity, about whether God exists or not. And if God does exist, which, which revelation should we follow? Which religious community is the one that we defend? Well, all of that is vitally important, naturally. But those disputes and those debates have a philosophic dimension to them that you can get to by ascending, so to speak, through those, through those issues. Once you see, like Strauss, uh, Leo Strauss put it, we used to follow a divine code of law where we thought our legal uh, order comes from the gods or from God. It comes from our predecessors and comes from those entities that are, let's say, closer to the truth of existence than we ourselves are. In other words, we live under a divine legal order. And because it's divine, it's good. But once you recognize that there are more than one political community that trace their legal order to uh, an act of divine law giving, in other words, when you're faced with a multiplicity of divine codes of law, you now are by that fact invited into the philosophical task of not necessarily adjudicating between them, but of seeing, well, what is the truth of this matter? Which might bring you into the question of like, what are the gods? What would the gods be? What is the nature of the relationship, if there is one at all, between the divine and the human? And you're faced with those questions more when the conflict of divine legal codes arises than you are when you're just operating within the system of a single code. Well, the same is true of regimes that are not, don't claim to be um, the products of an act of divine law giving. If you're a citizen of a liberal democracy and you are just serving the principles of your regime, you care about greater equality, greater freedom, human rights, all of those types of things. But when you encounter a plausibly legitimate alternative to liberal democracy, like for example, illiberal democracy uh, of the Hungarian type or something else altogether, well, one reaction is just to dig in and to defend your own liberal democracy. But another one is to inquire into the truth that rests above those alternatives, like to dig into the, try to get to the bottom of the dispute. We're faced with, a dis with an ideological dispute today within liberal democracies and among other types of political orders, a dispute 
kind of of the kind that is reflected in those multiplicity of political theory schools I mentioned, the Straussians, Derridians, postmodern deconstructionists. And we could add to it, like followers of Jordan Peterson, critics of Jordan Peterson from the right, like all of these different types of groupuscules, um, staging a dialogue or a conversation among them gives us access to a higher, may give us access to a higher perspective from which we can see what's true and what's not true in uh, each of them, or even how, how each of them thinks about what it means for something to be true. Heidegger is a crucial resource uh, for that, not only because he has an analysis, a, a fundamental analysis of the nature of human existence, which would be valuable as we're thinking about these various um, alternatives, and not only because he has a whole account of how human beings sometimes close themselves off from themselves. You know, he has a whole system that could be useful in understanding those differences. But also because these schools of political theory are directly constituted in response to his thought, sometimes because they oppose it, sometimes because they accept parts of it, like Derrida and his school do, and sometimes because they accept all or almost all of it, like Dugan's fourth political theory school does. So Heidegger is a crucial component of all thought today concerning the relationship between intellectual activity and political morality, you might say, or between more simply philosophy and, and uh, politics, or between political a crucial figure for political philosophy. So in another video, I'll begin to walk through some of what Heidegger has to say that is philosophically and politically relevant and how it's been interpreted by different schools so we can begin to understand both those schools in light of Heidegger and get better access to Heidegger through those schools. Those of you who watch me because you uh, like to follow my work on Dugan, you should know that he's called Heidegger the key to the Russian tomorrow and the deepest foundation of the fourth political theory. Those of you who watch me because you know that I work on Leo Strauss don't need me to remind you of Strauss's high estimation of Heidegger's philosophical significance. And if you happen to be someone uh, who is watching me and is sympathetic to French theory, um, then you know that French theory was largely configured by Heidegger's influence. Like, I think it was Tom Rockmore who said that French philosophy is just dominated by Heidegger. Um, if you're an American social democratic pragmatist Rorty follower watching this, hello and welcome to the channel. So that's all for now. Before too long, I will be making some videos on Heidegger. And as always, if you want to uh, suggest a topic, please do so. If you like any of the videos, please share them and feel free to uh, comment below and I will gladly participate in any um, discussions that arise about what I've had to say. Thanks for watching. Bye for now.